Macworld Podcast number 402 for April 9th, 2014. Brought to you by New Relic, which helps everyone's software work better. Hi, Ren. Hi, Dan. Yes. Hey, you're not Chris. Yeah, I'm not Chris Breen. Chris Breen was otherwise unavailable today. I will do my very Chris Breeniest. I'm wearing a Chris Breen wig right now. Do you have some fluffy hair going on? It's fabulous. It's fabulous. That's all I can say. Um, so here we are, we're, you know, jumping back in for a, another week. I've almost recovered from Macworld Expo. Oh almost. God, was I know, that was last like, week? <laughs> I know, it was like 10 days ago. I think I'm, I'm getting pretty close, but, uh, yeah, Mondays, Mondays always tough. Yeah. Um, Shh, this is Wednesday. Right. Wednesday. <laughs> always Wednesdays. Tough. Well, by now, listeners, you know that we usually record on a Monday or a Tuesday. Uh, so Dan's, I suppose, not spoiling anything too much. But Do not pay any attention to the Dan behind the curtain. It's probably it's Wednesday where you're listening to this. So we'll just pretend it's quote unquote Wednesday today. Yes. Excellent choice. So, uh, yeah, I was looking over to see what had happened in the world of Apple news this week. And I've noticed, among other things, that that really, really lengthy Apple Samsung trial seems to still be going on. And in- I know this because of all those crazy courtroom sketches. <laughs> Those courtroom sketches are pretty fantastic. I want a copy of those, if nothing I, else. I do have to take issue with apparently at least I, I assume that from one of the actual, you know, slides or whatever they had written up in the courtroom, they had a Macworld with an intercap W in it. What? That better you have know? been a Samsung slide. I certainly hope so. Um yeah, so there's some new documents that have come out. There's this kind of leaking out in dribs and drabs. Um bunch of new things including i thought uh one of these sort of interesting in the sense that it's not that interesting <laughs> is the uh the apple slides about losing out on both uh, apple's concerned about losing out iphone share on both people buying cheaper phones and phones with bigger screens yeah i thought that was actually pretty interesting because based on the slides and based on the context which i think it was a uh, yearly sort of retreat meeting. Um, it seemed more of an acknowledgement of like people want more of more more everything. People want us to do everything, and people are going to buy what we don't have from other people because, in essence, we don't have it. Um, and everybody's painting that as Apple being like, "Oh no, we have to make a bigger screen iPhone." And in reality, looking at those documents, I think that just says. Hey, guys, we're not in this market. Should we be or should we continue doing what we're doing? Because we're missing out on some money here. So we might want to think about moving into this market. But it certainly – it didn't have the same feel as, oh, my gosh, we have to be in this market or else our company is doomed that people are making it out to be. The thing that I thought was funny about it was that it shows that Apple executives really – they're just like us. Um, which is to say they worry about the same things apparently that all the pundits are saying about big screen iPhones. Um, and I, I find that interesting because they do such a good job of putting forth a face of not caring at all about it. Um, you know, that's the tried and true Apple playbook is, you know, telling you how much something doesn't matter up until the moment that they decide that they're going to go in that direction. And then it is the only thing that is important. TV is just a hobby, Dan. Right. You don't, no one wants to watch video on an iPod, please. Um, so, you know, I think that's, that's the interesting part of it is like people sort of think they're oblivious or, or I guess the, the option is sort of like bluffing if you have a more 
uh, a positive view of them and it shows that they're thinking about all this stuff they're just you know they're all about spin right they're all about refocusing your attention on something else entirely um so that you don't keep asking them uh so what do you think about the bigger screen iphone and they'll like look over here a dove that just came out of my hat <laughs> look we just uh we just sold a bunch of ipads ladies and gentlemen pay no attention yeah you got to change the conversation so i think that's what that was what interests me most is and it should be obvious right uh, you know this is a huge company that makes tons of money they're not going to be sitting there twiddling their thumbs going like bigger screens what <laughs> you know they're they're actually thinking about this stuff but it's uh you know it doesn't drive what they do necessarily no and uh on that note the other thing that i thought was really funny that came out of the uh the trial this week uh were a couple of emails from phil schiller uh being decidedly not his calm, collected self that we see at keynotes. He's a little, hey, if you, a little frustrated. If you believe uh, you Haunted Empire, he has, you know, like anger issues or something, right? He drives a Lamborghini and watches hockey. So <laughs> I yeah, didn't know that a Lamborghini equaled anger issues. Apparent, but... I don't know. And someone then denied that he even had a Lamborghini. So <laughs> Phil, Schiller, Phil Schiller is basically a lot like the Hulk. You wouldn't like him when he's angry. No, and these ad agents, his ad agency definitely does not like him when he's angry. Uh, he wrote a uh, a fairly long uh, response to an email from I think Chiat Day, uh, although I'm not uh, the Media Arts Lab that controls most of Apple's ad uh, campaigns. When they were, he basically said, "Hey, you know, Samsung's doing really well uh, with these certain with these certain ads, and we need to figure out a way to properly market the iPhone because we're doing pretty well on the iPad, but the iPhone needs work." And in response, uh, one of the members of Media Arts Lab, all in uh, uncapitalized letters, which was a little odd, uh, responds to him with some suggestions and, "Oh, maybe we should start, you know, releasing some product roadmaps." And uh, I don't want this to be like 1997. And apparently, 1997 is a is a not That's, safe that word. That is the red button. <laughs> yes, for Phil Schiller, uh, which will get him to write a very long, very dramatic email. About uh, how you know your your beliefs may not line up with our companies, and are Phil you sure? Schiller smash! <laughs> yeah. So basically, I think your assessment is right. Phil Schiller is the Hulk. Yeah. Uh, well, I mean, you know, well, I think we could basically go down the list of Apple's executive team and assign each of them to a version, uh, some member of the Avengers. But we won't do that. We'll save that for another podcast. Um, yeah, I, I thought that email was really interesting um, because it was interesting because some of the things that they brought up seemed like. You know, struck me as this person, maybe you know, whoever they're dealing with here at the uh, at the advertising agency, did not seem to have the best handle on sort of how to deal with Apple executives because the things he's throwing no. out are all things that seem very, you know, he talks about antenna gate. <laughs> um, you know, he talks about all the like the China, you know, the issues over China lawsuits. You know, Apple having too much money, like all these things that are definitely you know sensitive issues and things that Apple probably needs to think about, but. Maybe not the thing to th- you know throw up there when uh, when the boss is asking you, like, well, what are we going to do to sort of refocus our narrative? And and it, there was another bit somewhere else um, that also had Schiller talking about this uh, a Super Bowl ad for uh, Samsung and how he felt like they were getting it right, and and Apple was not so much you know under like their narrative ad for their ads was not really hitting it out of the park. Mm. 
which was I mixed metaphor because it was a Super Bowl ad, and I just went baseball. I don't know. Um, Isn't baseball the Super Bowl? No. <laughs> yes, the Super Bowl. Uh, ah. Yeah. So I, I thought that was interesting that you know Apple is generally regarded as having really good advertising and really good marketing, um, and I think there have definitely been people who have argued that the message has sort of got have gotten muddled or weaker over the last couple of years. Granted, keep in mind all these emails are from a year ago, right? So there's there's lag time in between. These are all from early 2013. So, you know, this stuff has changed since then. That's very um, true. But obviously it frames it in the match in very much in this like Samsung versus Apple uh, you know, paradigm. Yes. And apparently that is what this trial is actually about, uh, even though the documents coming out of it uh, sometimes only tangentially relate to Apple Samsung. So uh, I'm sure we'll talk about the trial more in oncoming weeks can if, i just uh, say yeah. um instead of instead of doing a trial cage match let's just <laughs> let's get it over and done let's just to you know two comp two smartphones enter one smartphone leaves problem solved app cage match competition <laughs> at its finest yes I, I would watch that tv show uh well all right so yeah we'll come back to the trial as i'm sure you know it's going to be going on for a while um, what else? What else happened? What else happened this week? Oh gosh, so many things. Well, I know what happened at the end of my week in that I ended up playing Monument Valley for two hours uh, before writing a staff picks column about. Is it. that a national park in the southwest? Yes, is it Utah? I think it's Utah. But no, in fact, I did not make a uh, make a plane trip and a, a beautiful hiking uh, destination. I instead picked up the new iOS game Monument Valley, uh, which is uh, just a delight in terms of uh, playtime and in terms of uh, the design. It's basically an MC Escher game combined with sword and sorcery type graphics. Um, it's I believe you mean sword and sorcery. Sorcery, yes. I always have to pronounce the that. W is there silent, is w. Dan. Yeah, but then so you get to confusing. Yes. Uh, but have you played Monument Valley, Dan? In fact, I just finished it before this podcast because I'm a speedy little fella. I played it in a couple hours this afternoon. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting. I've seen a bunch of people uh, commenting on the length of Monument Valley rather than sort of the experience or the the atmosphere and um it is a shorter game as far as uh as far as your typical you know not it's not quite like puzzle games go um i think gamers as a whole they're like oh i want my 10 to 40 hour games and two hour games feel like a ripoff uh but for me playing monument valley was very much an experience and uh it I almost took it a little bit leisurely rather than trying to rush through all of the levels. None of the puzzles were were so difficult that, you know, I, I got horribly stymied. It was just more of a, this is such an odd, strange little world and the storytelling clues are just vague enough uh, that it gives you sort of a, a an intrigue and, and willingness to, uh, to find out what happens next. But um, – I mean, I would have loved to have more levels to play, but I'm I'm actually kind of glad that there were only ten. It, it was a really nice curve. I felt I, the way I see it. I mean, you know, what was it? Take? I mean, it probably takes. I don't remember how long it took me to play it. Maybe an hour and a half to two hours today. Hmm. Um, and you know, that's like the length of a movie. Yeah. I mean, that's not too bad in my opinion. It, it felt like. I mean, because the game cost what four dollars. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Um, so, it, it, you know, it may be on the pricier side than most people are accustomed to if most people are downloading free or 99 cent games. That said, it's a gorgeous, gorgeous game. Uh, beautiful soundtrack. Um, the two games, it did remind me of Sword and Sorcery. That's a a, a good comparison. The other game, it kind of reminded Actually, two other games it reminded me of was one was the, the iPad game The Room and yes. The Room 2, which is to say it's sort of a puzzle game. Neither of those are particularly long games. They're probably a little bit longer in the order to maybe three hours. Um, mm-hmm. And those ones are a little easier to like put down and, and pick back up. You can do that with Monument Valley, but I felt like it, it kind of benefited from me just sort of... I mean, all the levels only take... You know, ten minutes or something. So it's it's a little harder to put down in between chapters. Um, but it reminded me of that kind of puzzle solving, both in terms of you know making you think a little bit outside the box, um, and in terms of some specifically some of the uh, like impossible shapes, uh, geometry, sacred geometry type stuff. Um, that reminded me of the room as well. The other game it kind of reminded me of was the PlayStation game Journey. Mm. Um, which has kind of a similar feel to it, I think, um, in terms of you're this you're this person on this little quest by themselves for the most part. Um, it's got this. The music was very similar to me, or very evocative to me of Journey, um, which has a, a great score, um, and it has the same sort of very exploratory feeling to it. There's not really any conflict. Um, you know, people aren't trying to kill you. You're not generally going to fall off a platform and die and have to start over again. It's really just kind of a puzzle game. Um, and I appreciate that. It's fun. It's it's more relaxing than tensing, which so many games... And I, and I like playing games that are, you know, twitchy shooter games and things like that. But those make you react in a different way. This one's more of a brain game than a reaction game. Yes, and I would fast... I mean, for me, I really hate the twitchy games. I mean, I barely got through Mist as a teenager because it freaked me out so much. So I, I like... I like being able to kind of take things at my own pace and and not worry that, you know, there are bird creatures in Monument Valley. I don't think that's spoiling anything. And initially I was like, oh, no, the bird creatures are going to eat me. And then when I discovered that they just kind of squawk at you, it's like, oh. Yeah, they're there as (laughs) obstacles and occasionally tools. Yeah. um, But they don't hurt you in any way. They just block your path so that you have to figure – they're another puzzle element. You have to figure out how to get around them essentially. Yeah. which is clever. I mean, and, and you know, on the topic of a $4 game that only lasts, you know, a couple hours, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, I go to the movies. It cost me way more than $4. Yeah. Well, we went and saw Captain America, and that was, what, 14 Something yeah, like that? Yeah. yeah. So. And Captain America, excellent movie. But uh, but $4 is a, a heck of a, a better bargain than, uh, than $14 for about the same amount of entertainment. And the quality is important too. I mean, it's a it's it's beautiful. It's a beautiful game. They clearly spent a lot of time thinking it through. And I think part of the reason that it's short is that that is not easy to come up with a game that that's that's that complex just no. in terms of the way the mechanics work. Um, and I found myself thinking, wow, you know, I really got to get um, my cousin's kids to play this just because I think it's again, it's a game that requires some brain power, but it's not a game that's you know, it's it's a it's very i lost my word i was thinking of entirely but you know it's it's a calm chill game right it it has that sort of i could see a you know it's one of my soothing, cousin's kids yeah. yeah well i could see them like sitting on the couch playing it rather than like you know getting all hyped up or whatever and i thought i think that would be a uh, a cool game but I, I don't mind paying a little bit more for a game that is the, clearly this well thought out and this original 
Absolutely. I'm I'm really glad to see these kind of games pop up on the App Store, and I was also really happy to see that it got featured this weekend uh, by Apple because I think it's it's one of those games that really highlights what you can do with iOS. Um, and you, like I had some problems with the controls and that like things wouldn't quite turn the way I wanted to, but even so, uh, it's part I, of the challenge. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's all part of the game. Uh, but I'm. I would I'll happily pay four dollars for something that makes me think about it for hours afterwards. Um, things like that, things like sword and sorcery, things like threes. You know, they're the just room. the room. Yeah, great. I mean, yeah, I, there are so many games out there on the app store. It's hard sometimes to find the really good ones. Um, and when you do sort of find one, uh, people tend to sit up and take notice, and I think that's good. You know, there's there's going to be some. These are the kind of games that to me embody the platform much more than all the other you know sort of fly-by-night titles that we see or freemium titles that we see come along so it's really it's great to be able to support these kinds of folks building these original games by paying them what the game is worth in my opinion agreed so uh before we move on to our next topic uh let's hear a little bit from our sponsor this week uh, new relic so uh, this one goes out to the developers the people who make the tools and apps that power the devices we love uh, as a developer, you can pour your blood, sweat, tears, and late nights and weekends into your app and release it, but what then? Wait around for a few people to leave a review at the App Store to determine if it's working the way it should and reaching the audience you attended? Hardly. New Relic can help, as it's helped major companies across the globe. New Relic is a software analytics company that makes sense of billions of metrics across millions of apps. They help the people who build modern software understand the stories their data is trying to tell them, the kind of customer using the app, where to best target the app for future growth, and how the app is performing in the wild. New Relic helps everyone's software work better. The software that powers our apps, runs our databases, manages our accounts, and runs e-commerce sites and email programs. When software breaks, everyone loses. New Relic helps improve your software performance so your users have a better experience and your business is more successful. If you're a developer seeking greater insight into your data, give New Relic a try. It's easy. Just go to newrelic.com slash macworld for a free 30-day trial. That's newrelic.com slash Macworld to start getting the information you need from the apps you've created. So what else do we have on tap from the past week? I I got one, if you oh, don't mind me stepping shoot. in here, which was uh, the, the sort of big news that came out last week that I saw anyways was Amazon introducing its Fire TV. Wait, wait, it sets your TV on fire? I like to think of it more as them suggesting that you should fire your television. Um, I don't know if that's, wordplay, Mr. I Warren. don't know if that's what they're going for. <laughs> I think they're probably just trying to capitalize on the whole Kindle Firebrand. Um, but yeah, Firebrand. See what I did there? Oh. Uh, but I yeah, uh, you're so, fired. So uh, yeah, the Kindle Fire T or the sorry, Kindle Fire Nine. They got me doing it. The Fire <laughs> TV is basically a small box that connects to your television. And lets you stream content over it. Amazing, right? We've never heard of anything like this before. Boy, it sounds really familiar. If only I could just put my tongue. Mm, no. Mm. Mm. Um, yeah. So yeah, it's not too different from what you might expect from the likes of a Roku or an Apple TV. Um, in fact, it's very similar looking to the Apple TV. It's a bit uh, not quite as tall, um, but it's got more a little more surface area than it. But it, it's basically mm. a little black square box. Right, and it's on the back. It's got an HDMI plug and uh, Ethernet, and uh, I think it's got a USB port on it too. Though I'm not even really sure what that's for. 
Um, and that's that's about it, right? You plug it into your TV, you get it on your network, and there you go. You're watching uh, Amazon Prime Video, which is probably the biggest sort of selling point for it because you can't – there is no Amazon Prime channel on the Apple TV itself yet. If um, ever. If ever. And it also supports other services including Hulu um, – uh, Netflix, of course, because everything supports Netflix. Of course. I think they're talking about building in HBO Go if it's not already there. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it's kind of your generic TV streaming box. So it costs $99. Um, yeah. So uh, I bought one because I was really curious. <laughs> um, because you have to have all things TV, let's be fair. Well, I've, I've actually run out of HDMI ports on my television now, <laughs> which is problematic. I guess you have to get another television. Think about a new receiver. We'll see. Um, my initial impressions are that it's not bad. Um, if you So here's what it's going to come down to, right? If you have bought into the Apple ecosystem, then there's no reason to buy this over an Apple TV. Um, the big thing that the Apple TV has going for it is AirPlay, um, plus access to, obviously, the iTunes store. So if you have a lot of iTunes content... Uh, or you like listening to iTunes radio, or you want to access stuff on your Macs, it's probably, you know, the Apple TV is probably a much better choice for you. That said, if you are a Prime customer and or a Kindle Fire user, um, then the Amazon Fire TV is probably a slightly better choice. Uh, But that's essentially all that, you know, the major sort of differences that it comes down to. There are a couple nice features on the Fire TV, uh, one of which is a voice search um, the microphone, there's basically the remote contains a microphone. You press and hold a little, you know, button on the remote and say, uh, I don't know, Christian Bale. And it'll think about it for a second. Did you mean Christian Bale? You say, yeah. And it shows you movies that are on its services that have Christian Bale in them. Um, and that's cool. Uh, I like that idea. It's not perfectly implemented yet in that it still tends to prioritize Amazon content. So though they made a big deal out of it saying like, hey, if your content's available elsewhere, like if we come up with a TV show or movie and it's on Hulu and Netflix and Amazon Prime, we'll show you sort of the the cheapest way for you to watch it, right? If you're already a Netflix subscriber, it makes much more sense to watch it on Netflix than it does to say, buy it from Amazon. Um, In my experience, that does happen, but it's kind of opaque um, and because the way that it works is it feels very much like uh, a, a some, like an Android device in that you have to go and install the apps for Hulu and Netflix on it uh, and then log in and all that. And so when you're using the voice search, it sort of kicks you out back to the OS, you know, in quotes. Um, and it doesn't necessarily do quite as good a job of showing you results from other services. So Interesting. Yeah, I, uh, that didn't blow me away. I like the idea of a voice search. The other thing, uh, which I think I mentioned to you earlier when we were talking about this, my big problem with the remote thing is I use a uh, Logitech Harmony remote to replace the half dozen remotes I have. And the fact that there's a microphone on the Amazon Fire TV remote means that I can't replace it easily. If I want to use the voice search thing, you can also use like a stupid like text, you know, you know, type in one letter at a time by using the little D-pad. Um, but but if that I is a pain. Mic- yeah, well, I mean, why would I do that if I had the option? But So if I want to use the microphone thing, I have to keep that remote separate, um, which kind of might be a bigger deal for me just because I hate having like five or six remotes sitting around. 
Yeah. I mean, I don't blame you. I, I wouldn't be surprised if we do see sort of a trend towards voice-activated boxes and, you know, there are rumors about Apple incorporating Siri into the next version of Apple TV. Um, it's possible that the Universal Remote crew might get on, oh, well, maybe we'll just put a microphone into our next version of the Harmony Remote. Uh, but that does mean, of course, that you're stuck upgrading and buying a brand new remote uh, just so that you can have voice search, which seems a little ridiculous. Yeah, uh, someone I think um, Kirk McLaren, one of our regular contributors, pointed out that you can kind of use Siri to search your Apple TV and that if you use the remote app on iOS, um, when you get to a search field, it usually pops up a text box and you can type in you know, your search queries on the phone instead of using the D-pad. And of course, any place you can type on iOS, you can also use dictation. So you can sort of use Siri to search for things. It's not quite as seamless. Um, I would really love to see Apple someday uh, come up with a way of more like basically having Siri be smart enough to know I have an Apple TV. And so if I say, hey, Siri, I want to watch this movie. It says, great. It's on this service. Would you like to play it on your Apple TV? Because it knows it's there. And then it can just take me right to it. Ooh, more incorporation. I like that. Or even just trigger AirPlay and say like, oh, I'm playing back this video. Hey, Siri, can you send like, uh, what do you you call it? Cast this video if there's a Chromecast, you know, or like toss this video to my Apple TV and it just starts playing it there instead. I mean, that to me, that seems much smarter to have, especially for someone like me who has such an investment in the Apple ecosystem. I've got my iPhone and my iPad, my Mac, my Apple TV. It seems like it would be great if these devices were a little bit smarter and knew that each other were there. Absolutely. I think that's a great idea. Thank you. Um, well, I'll be sending that over to <laughs> Tim Cook & Co. Tim Thank Cook, you. tcook at apple.com. Dear Tim, I understand you're busy with the Apple-Samsung trial, but um, <laughs> so let's see. What else? Anything else interesting across your desk? You know, I'm going to go back to apps for a second there because um, I saw an interesting report, I think, from Mac Stories uh, about a new app called AnyFont uh, that sort of circumvents Apple's traditional iOS sandboxing in an, in an intriguing way to allow you to install custom fonts on iOS. And it does so uh, by using a little-known feature on your iPhone uh, that developers actually are quite well acquainted with. So your iPhone can uh, can have profiles on its device, uh, which is basically a way to, to store information like, for instance, um, a development ID. Uh, but also, apparently, you can use that to install custom fonts. Uh, so any font uh, has a this font library, and you can install fonts to your iPhone system font by uh, basically picking the font you want and then that font then installs itself as a profile, which I thought was really neat. Um, I'm not sure. It's it's not technically against the, the iOS development guidelines, but it's enough of a, a strange hack that I, I was intrigued to see it and I'm, I'm curious what you think. I don't know how much – my question is how much of a hack this is. So you can do this yourself – if you use the um, – there's a utility for your Mac called the Apple Configurator, which lets you sort of deploy these profiles to your um, to your iOS device. And as you point out, this is kind of something that's used mostly by developers. Yeah, if you've ever beta tested a piece of software, you might be familiar with insta- in, yeah, installing a profile so that you can run, you know, basically this particular app that's not been distributed – that's in beta, right? It hasn't been distributed through the App Store. If someone is sending you an app – you install profiles so that you can 
uh, or a provision so that you can run that particular app. Um, and this is not the first time I've come across this in, in a uh, final app either. Um, the recently recommended uh, Best of Show winner from Macworld Cloak uses a very similar system uh, because in order to be able to uh, enforce this sort of VPN secure networking, it actually installs a profile uh, multiple profiles, I believe, that allow it to do its its magic behind the scenes. And uh, if you ever run, if you run Cloak, you'll notice that when you go to uh, add something, for example, as a trusted network, um, you're basically it runs you through very quickly updating that profile on your iOS device seamlessly. Like you don't need to use your computer; it's just a couple taps. Um, but there is a framework in place for app developers to do this. So to my mind, that suggests that this is, you know, above board. Obviously, you could also use profiles to do some nasty, you know, malicious things if you can talk a uh, user into installing them. It's one way that they can potentially uh, be, you know, tricked into doing something that's sort of like a malware-related thing. So it's, you know, at that point, it really becomes up to the people at the App Store who are reviewing all these apps to make sure that the apps that take advantage of this method aren't doing anything untoward. Um, but it, it does open up a lot of possibility for things that aren't necessarily uh, usually user accessible from within an app. So uh, I'm intrigued. Um, it's possible Apple will revise its rules and decide it doesn't want to ha- let ha- you know developers have that kind of access. But I think that it's probably there for good reason. Yeah, um, I'm. I'm hoping that this, you know, continues to be uh, to be available to developers. But as we well know, you know, one one malicious developer can kind of ruin it for the crowd. So I'm hoping that the uh, the App Store reviewers are are careful about this uh, this kind of deployment, and um, and we don't see anything malicious sneak through. That would be good because I don't like malicious things. No, not on my iPhone. I like my iPhone. They often seem very angry. Yes. Well, Dan, do you have anything else you would like to talk about? Uh, I was going to mention one more thing, um, and this is mostly a, a shout-out to a uh, article that we linked to off Macworld this morning. Um, a former Apple genius has written up sort of what he believes is the uh, ultimate guide for troubleshooting your iOS device's battery drain. And speaking as you know, people who get asked questions a lot— by users, both of our own personal acquaintance, as well as people who write us. Um, battery drains a real concern, right? I mean, people use their, their phone or their iPad a lot, and they want to get the most life out of it that they can. Uh, so a lot of time we, we hear people say, oh, I just installed such and such an update. My battery is totally ruined now. Or they'll say, you know, oh, yeah, I have this. My battery lasts half an hour. And you'll find wildly different experiences from person to person. Um, And so what this guy has done is compiled sort of what he thinks are the real potential culprits, as well as a a handy way to test just what kind of, you know, whether you have something that's actually running in the background and eating up your power. Um, And if nothing else, I'm really hopeful that this this article will get people to stop quitting apps that are in the background, which is a... A predilection I've noticed among some of my acquaintances. Um, people really like going into that multitasking interface and flicking the cards off. I mean, it's fun. I can't, I can't blame them for that. 
Um, but it, he makes a good point as to why this not only doesn't really tend to save you battery life, but in many cases can actually make your battery life worse. Um, because among you, when you relaunch that app later... Well, you have to reload all of that content. It, and that requires more battery than if you just left it running in the background. Because as we know, iOS freezes apps that run in the background unless they're doing specific things. Yes. So great tips in that article, I thought. Um, I ran through a few of them this morning. Uh, the best, I thought, among them was talking about background app refresh and how it's like, this is a great feature. There's nothing wrong with this feature. However... It's a huge drain. You probably don't need it for every app that wants it, right? Not every app is equal in the sense that it's great if you use, say, your Twitter client, your RSS reader, or some sort of news reading app, and like that's something you launch half a dozen times a day, and you always want it to be up to date. That's great. That's what that feature is there for. But I went through and was looking at it, and I'm like, there's so many apps on here that I use, you know, once a week, once a month. Um, and there might be apps that I value, but I just don't need them that often. And yet they've all got these background app, you know, privileges, which means they can be, you know, sort of having threads run in the background. Now, not necessarily actively all the time, but, you know, I'm giving them powers that maybe I don't want them to have if they're going to sit in the background there when I'm not really using them. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, background app refresh is a great thing for uh, for people to learn about who are used to force quitting their apps. Because essentially what you're trying to do with the force quitting of the app can be actually accomplished by going to background app refresh and turning off that, that right. switch so that you don't get keep on getting siphoning battery power. In addition, siphoning data. Uh, the fun – I had a fun uh, – surprise when I looked at my uh, my data that bill this year or this year this month uh, when I realized that I had background app refresh on for Facebook and it had downloaded something like a gigabyte of data in the month that I that I had that enabled yeah he called out Facebook specifically in that article as being one of the worst offenders in terms of running in the background yeah it tries to gather quite a lot, so that's that's something that i I am definitely going to be turning off in the future. I think that's a great article, and I'm glad you brought that up. yeah, so if you're looking for that, it should be on uh, the Macworld homepage uh, but I'll give you we'll put the URL in the show notes just in case it's scrolled off by the time you get around to listening to this um yeah that's that's all I've got. Ren, did you have anything else you wanted to bring up before we finished up today's show? You know, I only wanted to comment very briefly on uh, the iWork updates that came out last week. you know people uh people have been on this this rant for a while about you know oh the new five point iWork update you know it has so much missing, but Apple seems to be very being very good about slowly adding features back, kind of like what they did with Final Cut Pro ten. Um, and uh, and this is an article that I will be publishing hopefully tomorrow on our, our fine – or I guess it will be published by the time people hear this. It will be published on Tuesday. Um, on uh, Apple, Apple has snuck in a bunch of improvements to ebook export into pages, which is a, a sort of section of pages that it hasn't touched in almost four years. Uh, so it's it's really interesting. Not only are they improving – uh, or they're you know adding features back into pages that uh, that it had to exclude when uh, when upgrading everything to 5.0 to make it work seamlessly across the web, uh, but they're adding they're adding new stuff and they're adding uh, really important stuff for ebook creators out there. Yeah, that's I mean I think a lot they took a lot of flack for this and in some ways 
you know, to reference back to that whole product roadmap thing that we talked about with uh, the Phil Schiller story, um, wouldn't it have just been better if they just came right out and said, hey, we released these brand new apps. They're great. We're really looking forward to doing this new way, you know, this this new update that we we can bring parity to all our apps across the board, across iOS and Mac and iCloud. But, you know, we realize that not every feature that you may have used is in there. We're going to be working on rolling out those features. They did that eventually, but really only after people complained a lot. Yeah. And I felt like maybe they could have forestalled some of that criticism and some of the just, you know, foo-for-all over it if they had just come out ahead of time and say, yeah, we know we know not everything's in here, but we, we felt it was important to release this. Release sort of, something, a 1.0. Well, I mean, yeah. not to just say something, but like we, we felt it important to ship a product that we felt like made it clear where we're going. And then over time, we're going to sort of figure out how, because they really did go back and rebuild all these apps from the ground up. Um, and, you know, they've got totally new capabilities. They, there really is impressive amounts of parity if you look back and forth between the iOS and Mac and iCloud versions. Um, it's really all kind of a level playing field for the most part. Um, and so that, you know, that's clearly a really important part of the strategy for them is saying we've got three platforms and this stuff works great on all of them. And you can just go back and forth seamlessly. Yeah. Um, and that was their priority. And it was it was pretty clear but it didn't really stop them from getting a lot of uh, criticism for all the things that were not there. And it's not to say, you know, people sort of framed it as they, they removed all these great features. Well, in some cases, maybe. But in some cases, it was a matter of we hadn't gotten around to adding those features back yet. Um, so there's still a few things I want to see um, that they haven't really done. Every update, they keep claiming they've improved the uh, added more options to the keynote presenter display. It's still not back to where it was. Um, but I am hopeful that they are getting around to that um, because that was one of the features that I tended to use a lot. Fingers um, crossed. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it makes sense to me based on the way that Apple does things that this is how it was going to play out. Um, and it, it, they could have quelled a lot of the criticism up front if they had just said something. But that is not their way, unfortunately. No. Unfortunately, Apple's... Apple's modus operandi is rarely to announce things uh, in advance of what they're planning to do. Uh, but I, you know, I overall I am hopeful that you know uh, progressions are continuing and that uh, features seem to be returning, although maybe not as fast as people would like. Uh, so hopefully we'll we'll see more in that of that ilk in the future. Huzzah! Yes. Well, I think that wraps up just about all we have to discuss this week. Um, we will return once again next week. And by we, I mean Ren and your usual host, Chris Breen. It's not that we don't like you, Dan, but you have other podcasts. All I the do. other podcasts. I do. So I'm, I'm not here to monopolize. I'm just here to fill in to a friend a, a favor. Um, so, uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate being able to uh, guest star here. <laughs> well, it was good talking with you, Dan. And uh, we'll see you all next week. Bye.